HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still, still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my crew guests. My guest today is Michael Trumpe, who is a sake samurai, international sake judge, sake sommelier, and a certified sake educator based in Toronto, Canada. And Michael is also the co-author of the new book, Exploring the World of Japanese Craft Sake, Rice, Water, Earth, from Taro Publishing. And this book is not an ordinary book on sake. It not only covers the basics of sake with unique insights, but also discusses more advanced topics such as new rice varieties, water mineral contents, and how these elements articulate the terroir in each region. But make no mistake, this book is a fun read rather than textbook, although you would learn so much from it without trying. So you also get to meet people uh, from 35 breweries and other key players in the sake industry, such as Koji providers and female Toji. So today we'll discuss how Michael became a renowned sake expert and educator, intriguing topics featured in his new book, including the latest trends of popular sake rice, how newly developed flower yeasts are challenging the flavors of sake, Japan's diverse regional terroir, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as, as well as um, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write to review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Michael Trumbly. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi, Aikiko-san. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so this is exciting. So I, your book is just fantastic. So congratulations. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, we uh, we're very proud of it, and uh, we're we're so excited uh, at seeing everyone around the world um, finally getting their copies and and showing their joy of it. So it, it's really heartwarming. Mm, it could be a wonderful summary with a glass of sake, chilled sake in your hand, and then you can have a good time with it. So definitely, yes. Right. So, uh, so first of all, to get to know you, where are you from, and what did you eat when you grew up? It's a very good question. Um, so, I had a I have an interesting uh, background. I, I I was born in Montreal, Canada, uh, which is in in the province of Quebec, uh, so which is largely French speaking. So, I grew up as uh, French Canadian. Um, and I didn't actually learn English until I was about six or seven. Um, my my father was in the military, and we traveled quite a bit. Um, and so, um, some of my early experiences uh, were having local uh, Quebec uh, Quebecois food. Um, we we lived in a, a really small radar defense town called Shibugamu. It's kind of a funny name, but it was right in the middle of nowhere in northern Quebec. And uh, hunting was a, a really popular. Um, pastime for a lot of the people in the area. So um, it wasn't uncommon for me to have caribou or game. Um, also, a local delicacy in Quebec is called uh, tortière. Uh, and uh, my family made it quite often. So I, I really grew up loving that, even when we we, uh, we moved to other parts of Canada. Mm, wow. So, well, I've been to Montreal and I really found the food culture is very unique. And also the mindset of France in Canada. So yeah, you definitely a global person and it makes sense that you are in completely different culture called Japan. So that's interesting. Um, and your whole life seems to be uh, about sake. Uh, although I heard that you are uh, also a triathlete, composer and painter. So how did you get into sake? Yeah, it's a funny story. I I finished my master's uh, in Toronto uh, at, at York University, and I, I I joined a friend who was living in Halifax on the east coast of Canada uh, in recording an album. And while I was there, I was bartending, um, you know, to make ends meet. And uh, <clears throat> one of my early um, uh, bosses, one of our managers, was really passionate about wine. He always carried around a wine book. And so I kind of indirectly fell in love with wine through him. So I, I signed up for some wine courses um, uh, when I got back in uh, to Ontario. And uh, eventually, you know, I, I really loved learning about the history of the world through uh, the lens of wine, um, you know, just all these fascinating little pockets of history everywhere. And, and so when, I, when I'd have a glass of wine, I always uh, would think about what was going on here and what influenced the wine that I was drinking. And um, about 16 years ago, I, 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 I got a job at Key Modern Japanese and Bar in Toronto. And uh, uh, back then, um, we, uh, Key was a really big restaurant, a very busy restaurant. It had quite a large sake program at the time. Um, and we had about 20, 20 to 25 sake or so. And uh, I... That was my first, inf uh, you know, uh, 
exposure with sake is is starting here. And I really fell in love with sake through um, telling the stories uh, of the brewers. Uh, back then, um, I was still learning about sake and sake in general was a bit of a mystery in Toronto and in other parts of Canada. There wasn't a lot of sake educators or courses available in, in Canada. And so I, I, because I was at a, a company that was uh, quite successful, um, they and they had the financial means to send me to courses um, uh, where where I could learn about sake, uh, I was able to kind of demystify things and, and bring some of that knowledge to uh, to Toronto. Much like, I guess, the Toji uh, uh, back in the Edo period, uh, you know, these, these rice farmers that would go and learn uh, sake brewing techniques and bring them back to their to their their villages i think i guess there's kind of a cool symmetry there mm, right and uh it's interesting uh every single person i met and uh, the sake expert they fall in love with producers which you feature a lot in your book too so yeah sake is just not a beverage it's so much beyond um just the tastiness so, and before I forget, so you became a Sake Samurai in 2018. And could you explain what the title is? Yes. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a unique title where every, every year about five individuals um, from around the world that are doing, um, uh, are, 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 are doing good things in the world of sake or promoting Japanese culture, uh, are invited to Kyoto. Um, there's a shrine there called Matsuno Taisha, and it's a. Uh, it's a. I, my understanding is it's a 1300 year old uh, shrine to sake, and uh, you're invited to um, undergo a Shinto purification ceremony and then a sake ser- uh, samurai uh, ceremony where you're inducted in, and then you have this really nice extravagant dinner to celebrate, um, and so uh, and and. When you're inducted as the sake samurai, the whole idea is that you're you've you've done good things and you're being recognized for it, but you're also um, kind of vowing to continue um, to um, uh, 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 trumpets uh, Japanese culture and Japanese sake, which was very is very easy for me. I'm very passionate not just about Japanese sake, but about um, uh, how it ties in with Japanese culture and its history. Um, I, and so it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a huge honor to have been bestowed this, uh, this honor because you can't apply for it. Um, you know, it's not like, uh, doing a WSET diploma or a master of wine where you can decide to do it and do all the studying and, and work towards it. Um, the sake samurai is something that is kind of out of your hands. The sake brewers themselves are nominating uh, people from around the world, and uh, and then there's a there's some kind of a vote uh, as to who is determined to be to become a sake samurai. So it's a huge honor t- for me uh, to have been chosen uh, from a panel of you know sake brewers themselves, and it's, it's I think the greatest honor I could ask for. Mm. Right. They did a great job to select you. And uh, yeah, I remember that um, Tim Sullivan, one of the other sake samurais, when he was at the shrine, he swore to himself he was going to be the biggest teacher. And uh, you'll never forget what he said. So you're definitely, you know, in the right uh, group of people to educate all of us. 
Definitely. Well, and thank you very much. And I mean, Timothy Sullivan and, you know, John Garner and Bo Timken, these are, uh, and even Toshio Ueno in LA, these are uh, legends in the sake world for me. And I, when I grew up, and when I, I, I not grew up, when I learned about sake, when I started learning about sake, these are people that, uh, the names that I came across. So I looked up to them. Um, and uh, and so to become uh, one of them, so to speak, as a sake samurai was a huge honor for me. I feel like it's big shoes to fill. Um, and uh, and I'm, 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 I'm hoping to, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'll always, it won't be good enough for me. I'll always try to do more and more and more um, in, in the in the sake role. Someone mm-hmm. else I forgot is Chizuko uh, uh, Nizawa Helton from uh, from New York as well. She uh, she was one of the early people that I met uh, in Toronto actually uh, when she was doing Kampai Festival of Sake here, um, and uh, we became friends. Mm, yeah, Chizuko is amazing too. She's really um, pushing. She's a big cheerleader of the sake culture. Globally, so, right. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so maybe uh, people and listeners who haven't come across great sake culture stuff yet, then can you describe the first eye-opening moment with your Japanese sake? Yes, that's a, it's a really interesting question because, um, you know, at first, nothing came to mind. I know some people have uh, instantly, this is the sake that, that blew my mind. And I think... For me, where I inst- where I realized I absolutely love sake, it was I was working at Key, and it had been a few years, and I had maps that I maps to Japan that I would put on the doors of the fridges, um, so that you know back then in in the early days uh, at Key, sake was from Japan. It wasn't from Niigata or Yamagata or a specific area. It was just from Japan. It was very generic and. I was, I, I, but I, I can, kept seeing certain names. I was like, well, why are they making sake here? I don't understand. Let me, I, I want to understand this. And so um, I, I remember I had finished presenting a sake to a table and I had, I'd, I'd finished telling them a story. I, I really loved presenting a bottle of sake to a guest and and, uh, and and making them feel like they're traveling to that area. And so I, I, I fell in love with sake, I think, because I love telling the stories of all these really old breweries. Um, now, with that said, I think the first sake that I had that really um, was something I really enjoyed, uh, and I, I'd already been enjoying sake, but I really liked the sake of Dewa Zakura Shuzo. Um, and particularly sakes with Dewa Sansan um, uh, rice. I, I remember uh, I had a Dewa Zakura uh, Jumai Ginjo with, made with Dewa Sansan. And then I really liked it. And I don't know why, but then uh, I then maybe a few months later, I had another Dewa Sansan sake, uh, another Jumai Ginjo, I think from a different producer. And I was like, hmm. I really liked Dewa Sansan rice. It, it has a certain flavor to me. It had, it had, it, it was savory yet fruity, very pretty. It had this almost a really interesting mouthfeel. Um, and so then I went back to Dewa Zakura Shuzo and I, I, I tried more of their sake and I really fell in love uh, with the sake. And it was, this was even before, um, understanding the history and, and, um, and, and, and their significance to the whole, uh, Ginjo, um, sake making, which I know we talk about in, uh, Nancy and I's book. Mm, right. So 
Yes, it's in the book, and I enjoy that <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the text too. So, and then you are, um, you know, of course, you're a French wine scholar. You said it's, you know, you studied from wines, but uh, what is, how do you describe what's special about sake to you personally? Um, yeah, well, what I love about it is how old it is as, as a beverage. And I know wine is, is ancient as well, um, but um, I think... I think part in part um, Japanese sake captures my imagination. I, I I think because when you also visit Japan, you really still see the history um, at the at the at the brewery level. Um, in you know, if you visit a lot of wineries, and I'm not knocking wine at all, um, but a lot of wineries have modernized. There there's modern equipment and modern facilities you don't you don't have this 400 year old wooden building still um, where the original winery is I'm, I'm sure those exist but for the most part when you visit a sake brewery in japan um, even the, the ones that are modern have this element of history. You can see how old the brewery is, uh, you know, several hundred years old. And that captures the, the imagination. And it's one thing that I love about it. Another is that sake is quite a difficult beverage to make. You got a number of microorganisms that have to kind of, you have to, as the toji, uh, bring into balance in order to create a really good sake. And while sake brewers really make it look easy, um, it's, it's very difficult. And I know, uh, I know I have, I have some friends that have said, Michael, why don't you make sake? You're a sake expert. I said, no, I will never make sake because <laughs> it's too difficult. And, you know, to, to work with Koji and, uh, Koji Keen and yeast and, 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 make them happy with one another and in, into in creating a great sake. I'd rather enjoy sake and not be disappointed at my failures in, in making a sake that I, I wouldn't drink. So, yeah. Mm, right. I completely agree. You teach <laughs> and you understand you teach. <laughs> um, okay. And then um, I heard you visit over 50 sake breweries in Japan. So what did you see and learn from these extensive visits? Yeah, well, I, I think yeah for um, for uh, for the book research, Nancy and I visited between thirty five and forty sake breweries, and I've probably visited about eighty or ninety to this point, which is really I, I feel very lucky and fortunate because I've 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 traveled to prefectures in Japan um, that I think many Japanese probably haven't gone to. I've been to maybe about thirty five prefectures now, um, and. Um, uh, one thing that I find uh, I, I have learned was that just as you feel you know everything or uh, like you have a firm grasp on a certain, a certain concept of sake, um, you'll visit a brewer that turns it on its head, which means that there's it's really hard to put your finger on every aspect of it. And I think that's one of the things I, I, I love about it as well is that it's always intriguing. Um, you, you, you can never keep, uh, you can never stop learning uh, about it because uh, there's the historical side, but you'll visit a brewery that's doing something that you've never seen. And then you go to another brewery and they're doing something that you've never seen. Um, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, now with that said, uh, on, on our trips to Japan, uh, for research, uh, you know, we, we, we talked to brewers that were, uh, Omi Shonin. So that, and we were able to connect that, that history in, in the, in our book. Um, we talked to, 
a brewer uh, in Hiroshima, um, Imada-san from Imada Shuzo, who was starting to work with this whole idea of uh, polishing the rice uh, in a henpei, like a flat way, um, along the contours of the Shinpaku or a Genkei, with a, which is a more circular. Uh, and that really uh, was exciting for me. Uh, I know Daishichi as well was a brewery that, that has done it. Uh, but I, I, for some reason, I've read about the flat rice polishing from Daishichi, and it never really kind of connected until I was at Imada Shuzo and trying two bottles of sake where the rice was polished uh, in different ways, but everything else about the brewery, uh, about the sakes were the same. It was really eye-opening because it, 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 um, it made me think, well, where are we heading? You know, the, these are new advancements now. And, uh, it means that there's so much more on the fourth, uh, you know, in the near future of sake that, that is going to continue to evolve that we don't know yet. And it, that captures my imagination as well. I start wondering, oh, well, what's next? What are they going to do is, you know, if, 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 uh, Imara-san is doing this and other brewers start doing this, does it mean that we'll, uh, we'll need, uh, the Tokate Meishoshu system anymore because, uh, of the grading of sake because it means that you can remove less of the rice and create a sake that is uh, uh, that tastes like it, more of the rice was polished away. So it, it kind of starts to make you think, well, what 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 happens to the polish rates? Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm getting a little too technical, but it's these are some of the the kind of um, philosophical adventures that uh, Nancy and I were exposed to that were really fascinating. Mm, right. So basically, um, I was thinking of this classic Japanese phrase called onkojishi means um, all things are precious, but you have to keep updating it and then review what's important, what needs to be changed. And that's exactly the example you said. You know, the basically, for listeners who are not familiar with also polishing rice, you, to make sake, you have to polish rice. And then the level of polishing changes, uh, you know, the grade, so-called grade of sake, ginjo, daiginjo, all those things. But uh, what Michael is talking about is that the most efficient way to polish rice, which is only possible now because there's no technology to which part of rice you can, just like a small grain of rice, how can you polish it? So technically refined way. So that's definitely a good reason that why Japanese sake breweries are still very precious, even becoming more um, powerful in the global stage because they never stop improving themselves. And uh, unfortunately, not many, I mean, all of the breweries are not that lucky to be able to find a way to financially succeed. But that's interesting. And someone like you really pushing their back moving forward. So, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And I love what you said about how breweries, you know, seem to have one foot rooted in the tradition and the history that, that you know, of where they come from. And also having almost one foot moving forward and, and into new sake adventures. And, um, it, and, and you see it a lot. There's some sake breweries that have, 
you know, several brands. One brand is a very traditional sake that may or may not leave the prefecture. It's more for the local people and uh, of that region. And um, it's more of a, a traditional sake that, you know, they've been making for, for generations. Whereas uh, then they have a new brand that's really modern and, you know, appeals to consumers in export markets and, and Tokyo, Tokyoites alike. Uh, and, and so I, I think there's no... Um, there's no shortage of ideas coming out of Japan and sake brewers themselves and into what 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 to do next. Mm, right. So in other words, we are really facing a very interesting time for the next generation is, sake yeah. industry. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll uh, dive into Michael's exciting new book, uh, exploring the world of Japanese craft sake, rice, water, earth. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on HLN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Koteyama, and my guest today is Michael Tremblay, who is a sake samurai, international sake judge, sake sommelier, and certified sake educator based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, so... Let's talk about your new book. Again, it's the title, uh, Exploring the World of Japanese Craft Sake, Rice, Water, Earth, from Taro Publishing. And I really think this really, the title represents everything important in the sake industry. So, and you wrote this book, um, uh, which is Nasi Matsumoto, who is an excellent writer based in New York and Toronto, and super knowledgeable about say, Japanese sake, food and culture. So, yeah, well, for the time uh, restriction, uh, I couldn't invite both of you here, but I'm hoping to have some time to have Nancy or some other topics. She's really so broadly educated about Japanese culture. So, but anyways, how did you guys decide to write the book together? Well, uh, so Nancy and I uh, met in Toronto for the first time. Uh, she uh, she had uh, recently moved to Canada uh, with her husband. Um, they they lived in New York, but her husband was originally from around Toronto. So uh, they decided to move here, and and still have they still have a place in New York as well. And um, and 
it just happened that uh, around the time that she moved here, uh, or shortly after, John Gondner uh, held his first uh, sake professional course in Toronto. Uh, so John Gondner is uh, is a renowned uh, edu- sake educator, of course, um, and he, his course here was a, a great thing. And it, it and and he he was one of my early senseis, and as well as a lot of other people in Toronto um, and you know in other parts of Canada. And so uh, on the at the end of his course, um, uh, uh, John and I decided to have this patio party with our uh, with alumni and and uh, and his students at uh, at Key Modern Japanese and Bar. Um, and so we brought all the the rest of the sakes that were left over from the course. If, if you've ever taken a, a course with John, there's always a lot of sake left over because there's uh, there's a lot of sake that you try throughout the course. And so it's a great way of re you know reacquainting yourself with all these fantastic sakes and sake brands. And so Nancy and I met here uh, at at Key, and uh, we became good sake friends. Um, we kept in touch. Um, Nancy, every once in a while, was writing an article uh, that had a sake angle, and she would reach out, and we would we would talk and and what whatnot. And so we eventually decided to go out for um, for sake and and some food at a restaurant called Omai. It's a small uh, a small restaurant, but it, with a great sake list. And uh, we started talking about almost casually at the time about having a sake, you know, writing a sake book. I, at the time, I, I was at the tail end of developing my sake scholar course, which is a, a course on sake regionality. And, um, you know, we we started thinking, well, you know, we could do something together. And and uh, and a few months later, you know, we had more drinks and we, we kept talking about it. But then Nancy went to a, a fellowship in the U.S. called Stone Barns which is a, a fairly prestigious uh, fellowship. Uh, and it, it brings together all these successful women um, uh, that, that are talking about um, projects that they want to um, eventually, you know, th- th- there's ideas that they want to, to develop in the future. And so on the last day of this fellowship, as Nancy had mentioned to me, um, uh, basically everyone presents on something that they want to talk about um, or, or, or to develop a project that they want to get off the ground. And, and hopefully someone in the circle of, of people um, will kind of speak up and go, hey, I, I can help you with that. And so she mentioned our book idea, um, which again at the time was quite relaxed. It was, it was, um, it was more uh, a casual conversation. Um, but she got a lot of great feedback there. There were two book agents there that were really interested in, in representing us. And so I remember getting an email from Nancy saying, Hey, Michael, um, I think we're on to something. Um, you know, there's, there's two people here that really think our idea is great. So we, that kind of actually started to, um, light the fire. Um, we, we got together and we started, uh, discussing who would be a, a good agent for us, um, and we ended up with um, with a, a great gentleman based in Washington named Max, uh, who uh, who uh, gave us a lot of uh, uh, sage advice throughout the whole um, book uh, creation process, and uh, and then we put together a proposal and got the book going, and the rest is history. Um, we. Uh, yeah, I feel like I should stop there for a second and let you speak, Akiko-san. So, no, no, it's, it's amazing that, you know, how the ideas become sexual 
thing, right? And it's very exciting. I like the process. You really have to keep thinking. And yeah, somebody told me that just it's better to not to think too much and just like say it, say something to someone. And eventually you realize how serious you are about the idea. So in your case, it's just a, that's a good proof of what I heard. Um, yeah, so, um, okay, so what is the theme of the book? Yeah, so it's uh, a really good question. So the book is in in essential, essentially in three parts. We've got um, our first section is a, a, a sake basic section. And um, because Nancy and I were going to tackle a lot of um, subjects, some of them quite advanced, some of them, you know, more relaxed. Um, we and, and there was all, all kinds of other elements in it. We really wanted to set up uh, the book so that if you were new to sake, um, you could still um, get a lot out of the book. And if you were, um, you know, a sake enthusiast that that's been around sake for ten years, there's something there that you're going to enjoy as well. And so, uh, what was important for us was having a sake basic section. And uh, the sake basic section um, contains a lot of infographics. Um, we wanted to be very colorful about it. Um, I, I remember some of my first experiences learning about sake and, and when it's too many words and as a non-Japanese person, uh, trying to learn even just three or four Japanese words uh, in, in one go, is a, it could be a lot and it can be overwhelming. So we wanted to make sure that we had a way of, of, uh, of explaining what sake is where you could read through it with a glass of sake and not be very confused and, and really enjoy the experience. Um, and then the rest of the book is divided into two parts. Um, we've got our first part, which covers rice, water, and earth. So we really explore rice, uh, we, but we also explore how the rice has been treated, i.e. Uh, polished down to high degrees. Um, and so, and the ginjo boom. So we try to connect the history and where sake is heading. Um, and then we also talk about mountains and, and the idea of water and, 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 and even in subjects some, uh, like terroir um, that can be a bit divisive in, in not just in the wine world, but also in the sake world. But it was something that you know, we heard uh, numerous times uh, from sake producers. So we wanted to make sure we kind of explored these themes. In the second part, we really delve into the world of the alchemists. So um, the Koji merchants, so the, the proprietors of, uh, you know, some brewers, and, and, and it's funny, it never occurred to me um, as a sake educator, all that uh, to think, you know, a few years ago, where does Koji King come from? You know, I, I, I don't know if I just thought it was magic or you went on to Amazon and bought it, which is ridiculous, but it's, it's this, um, there's these fantastic companies with uh, quite a rich history that create these spores, these magical, this magical mold that we called Kojikin um, that brewers uh, uh, purchase. And then we also wanted to talk to scientists that, uh, that are dis developing new sake yeast. And then as well in this whole sec uh, second half of the book, we wanted to talk, uh, we, we, we uh, were very lucky to ask a lot of the sake brewers that we had visited 
whether they'd be okay sharing uh, some of their home cooking recipes um, that go well with the sake that they make. And so we've got uh, a chapter on on recipes of uh, traditional Japanese foods that you could make to go with uh, with sake. And even in some cases, some of the, the recipes include sake kasu or sake itself. So that was really, really fun for us. And then in that chapter as well, or in that, that second half of the book, we also talked to um, uh, we also recommend a few sake bars, you know, if you're visiting Japan, uh, where to maybe to, to, to look out for. Although, uh, with that said, Nancy and I are both in agreement that there's so many other amazing sake uh, bars out there to experience that, um, our list is kind of like a step one, but really you should kind of delve out there and see what's out there. And we also mm-hmm. talked to sake brewers from that are non-Japanese. So um, the movement of sake brewers that is growing around the world uh, outside of Japan. And that, that's a really, that was a really interesting chapter as well. Mm, right. And uh, in other words, we really captured uh, what's happening in this moment of sake industry, which is interesting because we tend to focus more on the traditions and what to preserve, but we kind of always fall behind in books, especially what is happening, what's leading the future of the industry. So I really thought it was great. And uh, No, I agree. I, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And we really wanted to connect that history with the present and then arm the reader with, OK, what's next? Now I have a really good idea of what's what might be coming and and, you know, be willing to explore it because it's uh, it, the some of the things going on in the sake world are happening so quickly that it's really easy not uh, to be unaware of what the significance of certain things, certain aspects of it are. And so we really wanted to, to, to do that in a way that it was digestible. We didn't want to create a sake textbook. We wanted to create a book that's really enjoyable. And as you said earlier, um, that you could have a glass of sake with and enjoy. Mm, right. And I really love the, you know, the visual page. I'm very visual. I really need to see um, in shapes and, you know, very interesting way to look at it. So I, I love the pages too. And uh, I mean, throughout the book, you emphasize the importance of the differences between sake producing regions. You use the word terroir. And how important are the regions in understanding Japanese sake? Well, for me, as I mentioned earlier, when I got into sake, sake was all from Japan. Uh, you know, it was like, you know, in, uh, and, and uh, I think it's really important to get to know these, these regions of Japan, even if they don't have a regional style. You know, like Niigata has a, is synonymous with Tanrei Karakuchi, uh, and this light, dry uh, style that has this kind of clean kire finish and that's cool and it's 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 good to know that so that if you like dry clean sake this might be something to uh to look out for but i think every region uh has something to offer um from a cultural standpoint um from a, a food uh standpoint um that ties in with sake and so i think it's 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 really neat i think you get more out of the bottle of sake that you're opening if you can uh you know look up a map, get a map of Japan and find it where that area is and what's going on there. What was the history behind the brewery? Um, and I, I, and I do think that for the, for the guests uh, that I, that I've, uh, been acquainted with that have opened some sake where I explained 
where the sake is coming from, they absolutely love that sake. And there seemed to be more joy in their eyes and their their excitement to try more sake um, from hearing those stories than when a bottle is brought and someone says, this bottle is a Junmai Ginjo. The rice was polished to 60%. Junmai means no al- added alcohol. It's just, that could be so clinical that it just takes the, the magic and the... Um, the experiential side of what sake is all about uh, out of the equation. So uh, in terms of uh, the regions, it's not important per se of, you know, necessarily indicating what you're going to find in the bottle. But I think there's, I find sometimes we're informed about how, in, how much we're going to enjoy a bottle by what we know about it before we, we open it. If that makes any sense, it's like right. the nostalgia of it. Yeah, so maybe I I shouldn't say the regions, right? It's more like a local um, personalities. Like the water is different, but more importantly, uh, people's um, you know approach to sake, the history, culture. It sounds kind of cliche, but uh, for example, I went to Hiroshima uh, a while ago, and one of the breweries. He said so proudly, you know, I we use the well water and you know what? This water today comes from that mountain. He was pointing the mountain and it took 15 years to get here. It's like, and then I, after that, I tasted his sake. Oh, wow, that's clean minerals. And that's what you think is actual beverage, right? It's not factory made. It's actually what people make as a part of their lifestyle and that makes the sake even more special and delicious. So I think that's the whole point of you mentioned different um, areas where sake is from in your book. Yeah, I 100% agree. And uh, and yeah, when brewer, when a brewer points out where the water comes from, that kind of is, that's exciting because you, you'll always now, when you open a bottle of sake from that producer, you're going to always visualize that mound and it's that, that helps transport you there. Another right. thing, speaking of mounds is, you know, a lot of labels uh, have uh, um, symbols, these majestic symbols of mountains, maybe in the name of the sake brand that they're using, because it's, it's, it's located around the brewery and it's a famous mountain. And so, um, I think sometimes there's a clue to w- the area that the sake is from just in the, in the name of the, uh, of the sake or on the label itself. And, and that's really cool when you, 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 uh, unlock those little mysteries about that sake. Mm, right. Okay, and uh, to invite our listeners to maybe try to read the book, I, I just wanted to pick uh, maybe one or few topics that maybe you can explain. It's one of the topics is the sake yeast, uh, which usually people don't talk about because this can be a little too advanced, but you make it really easy to understand. So how about the trends of sake yeast? Um you know, it's out of simple ingredient sake, water, rice, koji, lactic acid, and yeast. And yeast has been a hot subject for a while in the industry, right? It has, yeah. And it, it's very different than wine, where in, in winemaking, uh, the grapes themselves do inform a lot of the aromas that you might find on the end, you know, at the, in, in the bottle. In sake making, rice isn't going to create the aromas of pineapple and lychee and 
you know, white flowers and fennel, it's, it's, it's the yeast that really is creating those magical aromas you might find in a sake. And so, yeah, we talked to a, 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 a number of producers. We, we visited uh, Tokyo Nodai, which is um, a very important university of agriculture in Tokyo um, that, uh, that new generations of sake makers are, um, are attending and, you know, obtaining uh, a bachelor's or a, a post, uh, a master's degree in, you know, microbiology, for instance, or and in, in, in studying yeast, that kind of thing. And we talked to a, a gentleman there named Kazuoka Sensei, who's uh, one of the leading experts on flower yeast or on Hanakobo. And that was really fascinating because, um, again, like uh, how I mentioned Koji, I never thought of how where Koji came came from. And surely I knew someone had to produce it, but I never I never thought of it because I was always too focused on how sake was made to think about that. Um, yeast as well. I was it was really fascinating to visit Kazuoka Sensei because he was basically ta- you know harvesting flowers from all over Japan. And for each flower, you could have thousands of yeasts that you uh, culture and then have to determine uh, whether or not they can make good sake or not. And of those, say, a thousand yeasts, there might be one to ten yeasts that are viable uh, as a sake yeast. And then from there, you still have to, you know, do testing and all that. It's it's painstaking and it was fascinating to talk. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of patience. I would, I'd rather be on the other side of it, um, where some sake brewers, you know, uh, we visited a brewery in, uh, Saya Shuzo in, um, uh, in Akita that makes a, a brand called Yuki Nobosha and, uh, Takahashi, uh, Toji, uh, the, the master brewer there, he isolates yeast, um, all the time. And basically when he's making a sake and there's a change, he's like, Oh, something happened here. There's something going on here. That's interesting. It's, it's, it's neat. And I like it. And he'll culture from that, that tank. And so there'll be a, a significant population of the yeast there. It, it's, it seems less of a needle in a haystack than Kazuoka sensei's adventures in trying to find a yeast, you know, amongst thousands and thousands of, of different yeasts. We also visited uh, a, 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 a scientist, a brewing scientist in Kochi, Kochi Prefecture, um, uh, and his name is Ue Higashi-san, and he uh, he's retired now, but he's he he's basically uh, single-handedly created the yeast uh, uh, portfolio that you see in Kochi Sake. And uh, a lot of them are, uh, some of these yeasts are some of the most aromatic, uh, explosive or aromatic sakes that you'd ever find. Um, some of them are beautifully fruity while having a very nice dry palate. And these sake, sake yeasts have really shaped the sake uh, persona of the, of the sake that you would find in Kochi. Um, and there's a lot of personality to them. They've even sent some of these yeasts to space. Uh, and, the, and now these yeasts are down, you know, several kilometers below the Pacific where, you know, at the, these intense pressures are seeing how the yeast is going to change or whether or not it's going to survive. So there's a lot of really cool things that, um, that they're doing in just Kochi alone. Um, and so really there's this always going to be a pursuit of new yeasts that are, um, you know, kind of create unique aromas that, um, you know, that, that, that create the, uh, this 
new style of sake that, you know, um, consumers are going to really love. There's even experimentation with wine yeast and, uh, and other things. So it's, it's a really fun world, uh, to explore. And, mm. uh, I, I can't imagine it's going to end anytime soon. I think that exploration is going to continue and continue on, um, by right. scientists like Kazuoka Sensei. Mm, right, and then well, most famously recently, the the people started to use uh, the yeast from flowers, and that kind of had more diversity in all those things. The new technology allows us to do it. So yeah, that's exciting, and uh, yeah. So maybe you have more time just for one more topic of um, uh, one of your book items. Uh, that's <laughs> I, I'm so glad you picked this uh, Omi Shonin. And no other sake book I captured this word, the omishoni. So what is omishoni and what's their role? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, so the omi, omishoni uh, were merchants and they're were, they were originally based in the omi area. Omi is an old area of uh, 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 a part of uh, uh, what is present-day Shiga prefecture. So um, Shiga is famous for Lake Biwa, which is the largest lake in Japan. If you're looking at a map of Japan and uh, you don't know where Shiga is, just look for the largest lake um, uh, you know that you see, and 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 uh, and Shiga is right around there. And uh, and these these uh, merchants uh, date back um, you know to the 13th century. So they there's quite an extensive history, and. Um, Eventually, by the 15th, 17th century and, and, and later, they became very widespread through Japan. Um, they, uh, they basically peddled all kinds of, of goods, and, um, and some of them became sake brewers eventually. Um, you know, they got into, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure selling uh, rice and things like that as well. And it's interesting because um, before the book, I, I knew of them. Um, you know, I, I encountered it when I was doing a lot of research for my sake scholar course, uh, which is on regionality. But I, I, I was I was doing a lot of research on sa- sa- different breweries and only Shonin kept coming up here and there. And, you know, I realized there's a lot of brewers that have, you know, a lineage that goes back to these this famous merchant uh, class that that was all over Japan. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the. There's no shortage of breweries. One of my favorite breweries right now that I love drinking is a uh, sake from a brewery called Hachinohe Shuzo. And they're on the northeastern side of Aomori-ken or Aomori Prefecture um, in a town called Hachinohe. It's a fishing village. And they they, they have a kind of a traditional lineup. Uh, they make Mutsu Otokoyama. And then they have a more um, uh, global or modern style uh, mutsu, called Mutsu Hasen. And if you trace their history, um, their history, uh, they were established in 1740 and the first generation of the family, they're currently on the eighth generation of the family. Um, the first uh, generation, uh, Komai Shozaburo, uh, he left the Omi province and started a malted rice business. So basically he was working with Koji and things like that. Um, and, uh, and the rest is history. He started making sake and, and you can see that there's a, we highlight, there's a number of breweries, um, in our book that have this ancestry with the Omi Shonin. It's interwoven into, into the history of, of their sake, uh, uh, brewery. And it's, I, I found it very fascinating to tie that in because it's also, you also see it, 
um, when you follow the ancient roads, like the Tokaido or the Nakasendo, um, you know, you had sake breweries that were set up along this road uh, system that connected Kyoto and Edo. And uh, these these breweries, a lot of them were uh, omi shonin. You know, they were. They, it, it made sense. They would create their own bed and breakfasts and uh, make sake, and they were able to kind of be a one stop shop for for wary uh, travelers coming through. Mm, right, and then uh, the fundamental uh, concept of philosophy of omi shonin uh, is that do the business, but you can't pursue your own interest only. And as a result, you have to benefit the societies too. So um, that's, uh, you know, they say sampo yoshi, that's their philosophy, three-way satisfaction. And it's timelessly relevant. So, I mean, I see, I visit many breweries, they really have a mission to provide something valuable to the society. And they are responsible for rice farmers. And it's, it's not just their drinking production, I mean, beverage production. And I really thought that you've captured this uh, word, omishoni. So, yeah. And so I, yeah, it's just a, well, this is one example how unique your book is because there's so many interesting um, angles that you included, which you don't see in other, you know, regular books. So, and uh, so what did you learn from the process writing this amazing book? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, you know, the book was probably more than three and a half or four years in the making now uh, since when Nancy and I started uh, discussing the idea of it. Um, I, I think one of the things uh, is um, I was very fortunate to have a writing partner like Nancy. I don't think I could have written this book on my own um, ever Um I mean, I'm a, I'm a sake educator and I love everything to do with sake, but the, it, we were able to tie in this history and culture of Japan and, and which is very complex and weave it into sake and sake making and, and, and the personalities that are in sake. And I think I was very lucky to team up with Nancy, who's a journalist and has this natural inquisitive mind for getting the facts straight, um, on, you know, some of these really complex things, even like Omi Shonin, um, she would, she would reach out to some brewers that we didn't even visit, you know, to kind of clarify things. And I think that was, that was a really great thing. Another is, uh, not to bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> it was one thing <laughs> I learned because, um, I, uh, I, I was undergoing the WSET diploma uh, throughout a, a lot of this. Um, I was developing and teaching my sake scholar course. I was also teaching the WSET level three award in sake. Um, I was also traveling a lot and, and I also have a full-time job uh, with my uh, duties at Key Modern Japanese and Bar. So it, uh, at some points I felt like uh, it was just a bit too much. And I think if I did it again, I would, I would give myself more time uh, to enjoy more of the process of the writing of the book where it wasn't as, um, you know, it, it just seemed there was, were, it was always full on because there wasn't a lot of time to do everything. And um, so that's one thing I would do over again. Mm, right. Despite the book is amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> You're I'm lucky. Yeah. 
Yeah, we were lucky. Nancy and I had a great agent in Max. Um, we had a, an editor. Her, her name is Kathy Lane, uh, who was a Tuttle editor um, and Tuttle Publishing as well. We were very lucky that we had this um, kind of sphere of people um, uh, that helped us, uh, guided us through this this process. Um, and uh, and ultimately, I think we Nancy and I did the hard work of putting this book together, but they they also had us uh, a hand in helping to shape it and allowing us to create a book that we wanted and that we would be very proud of. Mm, right. Okay. So for listeners who wants to buy the book, where it's available? Well, it's available online through a number of. Um, uh, of, uh, of, of re- online retailers. Um, but also if you're based in New York, um, Kino, Kino, uh, 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 Kino, and uh, no, I, I always have uh, trouble with this word. Kino, Ki, uh, Kuya. And, yeah, I think I started thinking about the word and, uh, but, uh, they, uh, they, they bought a number of books that we, that Nancy and I signed. Um, it's also available at Kitchen Arts and Letters, um, in Manhattan, which is a fantastic bookstore, um, that has a 40 year history, um, uh, and their focus is food and drink. And also at Brooklyn Cura in, uh, in Brooklyn, um, we, uh, where we did, um, a book signing. We had a, a sake launch party um, uh, last month, and we we signed a bunch of copies there. So those are three great areas to to buy it. If you're in on the West Coast um, in in San Francisco, Bo Timkins True Sake um, shop has it, um, and we're very proud that it's there. And um, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, it's also available uh, as an online, uh, uh, if you like e-readers as well, uh, if you want to um, have a copy that is more portable where, you know, for your next trip to Japan, that's another mm. way of going about it. Right. Okay, great. So uh, well, we wanted to discuss your uh, Sake Scala course, but we run out of time. So uh, your course is uh, www.sakescala.com, right? Then the people can find how to study, learn about sake um, beyond the book. So and also, where can we find your updates online and on social media and everything else, books and all updates? Yeah, uh, well, um, I'm I'm fairly uh, active on Instagram at uh, MTR Sake, so M as in Michael T Tom uh, R Sake, and uh, it's the same handle for Twitter as well. Um, and also, uh, if you're looking to take a deeper dive into sake and, and learn about the regions and, and culture and all that, the Sake Scholar course is probably something at some point you may want to look out for. Um, so you can uh, just look out for the, the website that you mentioned, sakescholar.com, uh, and that's a great way of doing that. Mm. Great. So, well, congratulations on all the achievements about sake, and uh, well, good luck. You have a lot more work to do as a sake samurai, so... Good luck. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at Japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amen Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week.
Spaniards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.